got one or two in uh, in May, and then we will uh, we will be will be scholastic. We'll be uh, in the rhythm and take a break for the uh, for the summer. It looks like and do something a little different. If folks want to participate in that, but this is uh, uh, this is session number eight. Welcome. Well, let's open up with a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. It's true and sure because your son is true and sure. He's the image of the Father who is true and sure. We know that you do not lie to us or mislead us, but rather you reveal yourself to us. Not that we deserve it. Not that we are capable of wresting knowledge from you, but indeed you accommodate us. You stoop down to us and minister to us in spite of our weakness and our sinfulness. You overcome that great distance between God and man, even by sending your Son, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for him and for his word. Help us to understand more of it tonight as we think uh, about that word. Encourage us in it, uh, that we might read it and take it to heart, and that it would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make a difference in our living and thinking and feeling. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're on session number eight, and and just to quickly review, as we always do, the the background uh, uh, to our study of theology is to recognize that God is the one who speaks to us in general revelation and in special revelation. And we saw uh, in the last uh, week or two that there, or session or two, that there, uh, in the inspiration of Scripture, there are some major chair texts that we need to take to heart: Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. In Second Peter one nineteen and John ten thirty five, all are major chair passages. You can you can think of them as legs to a stool. Um, if you have a stool or a chair and it has a number of legs, these are these are passages intended by God in order to ground us, to support us, to encourage us in our understanding uh, of uh, the process of inspiration. That that the text is inspired by God that he does that by carrying along the prophets and apostles of old, and that the product uh, cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken, and it's for our blessing uh, and our education. Uh, this process of inspiration is organic. That means it comes from God, but it engages uh, at a human level as well. God uses human authors, uh, even as his son was incarnate, so too he uses human authors in revealing his word to us. And he does that by the Holy Spirit carrying them along uh, and their human faculty and knowledge and personality and uh, intellect and uh, experience. All of this is crafted in the sovereignty of God and by his providence uh, in order to give us the text which uh, uh, he commanded for us to have. Uh, we noted uh, previously that inspiration is full, uh, that it's plenary, and uh, uh, therefore that uh, every word, uh, not just uh, part of the Bible, but all of the Bible, every word is inspired by God, and uh, therefore we pay attention uh, to each and every word that is there. And uh, today we begin the topic of the authority of God, uh, the fact that the Bible uh, carries the authority of God himself, who is its author. Uh, the ground of biblical authority, which is item 3.1 on, on the slide, uh, number 6, uh, the ground of biblical authority is uh, that it has authority simply because it is the Word of God. Uh, it's not just our Word, or 
It's not just for us. It's not just about us. It's not just in human language. It's not just even from holy apostles and, and wonderful prophets and, and those that are uh, uh, pious and, and spiritual men. It, it ultimately is from God and therefore carries his authority. The Bible is not believed because of the testimony of the church, but rather uh, the Bible is believed uh, because of God. And the Bible's authority is not the authority of the uh, expert or of the genius, but rather the Bible's authority ultimately is the one expert, God himself, no man, but rather God is the one who grounds the authority. The Westminster Confession in chapter 1 and section 4 says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Now, we, we should pause for a moment and reflect. This does not mean that uh, what the church says about the Bible is irrelevant to us. There is the communion of the saints. And, and for the church, and especially the church down through the ages, to say, hey, the Holy Scriptures... Uh, have been given by God as a blessing in our life. They're to be true. Uh, they're true, and they're to be taken to heart and believed. That testimony of the church is, is very important to us. Um, as we grow up, we learn that there are authorities in different realms of life, and there are experts in different realms of life, and and uh, experts who are faithful in their study of the scriptures and have carefully probed the meaning of the original terms and to understand uh, how those terms would have been. Uh, uh, understood by the original audience and by the original authors uh, and how s- those words fit together in sentences and sentences into paragraphs and themes communicated by them and the interconnection of those things. All of these literary and, and different the scripture are important. But that doesn't mean that just because somebody has a Ph.D. Uh, and teaches at Oxford uh, that we must believe everything they say about the Bible or that they know more uh, than God does, and therefore they can take one portion of the scriptures and turn it on its head against another. Um, experts are nice, but some experts are sinners like the rest of us are as well. Uh, some, yes, I, I, I'm being, yes, I'm being facetious there. Sorry, sorry, a little dry wit. Yes, all experts are, are sinners and are fallen, and therefore uh, these experts can be wrong about things. I, I, um, had the privilege of going to the University of Edinburgh for my Ph.D. studies. We had all manner of different academic life to uh, come on campus and speak to us on uh, uh, spirituality and divine uh, uh, divinity, um, uh, the text of the Scripture, uh, the intelligibility of the internal teaching of the Bible. And uh, some of them had some very fine things to say that were insightful and faithful to the text, and others of them fairly fairly clearly didn't like the Bible very much and uh, spent most of their time taking pot shots twist it in one way or another. So experts uh, are not our slave masters. Uh, we are not bound by them. Uh, God indeed is our master, and so we follow his word. Uh, sometimes you get uh, helpful insights uh, from people that are not even Christians and make no pretense of uh, a commitment to uh, Jesus Christ but uh, the gifts that they have, where did they come from? They come from God. God is their creator. And God may use them as a blessing to his church. He may, 
He may in his providence give them insights and understanding into the scripture that, that others have not, uh, facets others have not previously appreciated. Um, uh, it is uh, delightful on one level, but laborious on another to go into a library and spend uh, days and weeks and months and years digging up uh, minutiae and themes and et cetera. And I'm, I'm just so thankful God used uh, all sorts of good saints and all sorts of uh, crazy pagans in order to do a lot of that basic mining that we can uh, appropriate uh, from it. Um, they can uh, dig out the coal and then we can gather it up and, and we can use it to the glory of God. Uh, there are uh, sometimes uh, prejudices that uh, Christians bring to the text that, that sort of fog their glasses so that they don't uh, see and hear uh, the text being and saying what it is in itself and others from another culture or, or even from uh, another tradition can uh, understand and see it. But always we weigh these things internally. Uh, that is, how do we know something is a correct understanding of Scripture? Well, it's, it's, by, it's by understanding it and weighing it against the rest of the whole. Light in one place must be proven to truly be light from the Scriptures by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, that's the hermeneutic that we use, but we'll come to that uh, uh, in, a, in another session. Uh, so the authority of the Bible is God's authority, and, and therefore it's not just that the Bible is kept on a shelf or on a coffee table. It's that the Bible is read and the Bible is taken to heart and the, because it is the Word of God, it's authoritative over us, and so we seek uh, to, um, uh, to understand the Bible and its relevance to every aspect of our being, every aspect of our living. The relationship that we have with our neighbor, with our spouse, with our children, uh, how we are to respond to government, how we are to respond to terrorists, how we are to respond to uh, uh, co-workers or our bosses, uh, how we're to interact one with another in the fellowship of the church or in the wider community. All of these things are to be under the authority of God because he's our creator and therefore uh, to be informed by and controlled by uh, the authority of the Bible. The Bible has real authority that is uh, derivative from, from God himself. Um, next uh, is the attestation of Scripture. Um, the confession of faith in chapter 1 and section 5 uh, gives us a very eloquent and historic statement on attestation. Oftentimes people, uh, even Christians, do not spend a lot of time thinking about the fact uh, that the Bible is attested to us. It is confirmed to us and, and what the basis of that is. It says, uh, 5 of chapter 1, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory, all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the one way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby the Scripture, it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Now, that's a very almost poetic uh, way of describing attestation, that there are lots of things that commend the Bible to us. Think back in your own experience. What is the first portion of the Bible that you ever remember hearing? Now, not to say that it was the first that you ever heard, but, but maybe it's something your mother read to you. Maybe it's something that uh, 
a friend in college or a coworker quoted to you. Uh, maybe it was a billboard. Some portion of the Bible. Maybe you went to one of those uh, uh, hotels where you open the drawer and what's there? The Gideon Bible is there. What is the first portion of the Bible you can ever remember hearing? Jim? Yes. The 23rd Psalm by your public school teacher in second grade. That's wonderful. Anybody else have a, have a memory of a Bible verse? Or I'll, I'll extend it even a bit larger in, in Reformation spirit. How about the first sermon you ever heard? Do you remember? The first one you can remember. I remember my first. I mean, I was in... born, so uh, my, my parents cared. I was carried in the womb to church every week. But the first sermon that I ever can remember hearing was by a minister, uh, uh, an assistant minister in our church named Buddy Craig. And, you know, I, I never really understood why his name was Buddy, but it sure made me, made me feel good about him, even as a youngster. And he got in the pulpit at First Presbyterian Church in Aiken, South Carolina, and he preached a sermon on David and Goliath. And I can remember sitting on the edge of my pew thinking I was right watching David cut that old giant's head off. Um, God has his word impact us at the strangest time and in the strangest of ways, according to his providence. And there are wonderful things about it that, that commend itself to us. For example, you know, part of what was so exciting to me as a young boy about David and Goliath was the majesty of the style and the consent of all the parts. I mean, everything was there that you needed as a young boy for a really good story, right? There was a clash, there was a slingshot, there was a sword, there was a winner and there was a loser, a good guy and a bad guy. I mean, it just was perfect, as the story goes. And uh, those are things that commend the Bible to us as, uh, as an authoritative uh, book. They attest uh, the excellencies of the Bible to us in that way. But the confession goes on to rightly and biblically say, yet, notwithstanding all these wonderful things, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Bible thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with in our hearts. So yes, uh, there, is a, uh, there are wonderful things about the, the Bible. The heavenliness, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of style, uh, the scope of the whole, the, that it's all about salvation, uh, all these wonderful excellencies, but at the end of the day, the thing that really, 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 really gives us full persuasion, that gives us full attestation, is the Holy Spirit working, God working in our hearts and lives. So when I sat there as a little child, hearing a sermon, hearing the text read and hearing it preached on David and Goliath, it wasn't just Buddy Craig who was list, reading and speaking and little old Duncan who was listening. It was also the Holy Spirit heart working in my life before, during, and after all of this to drive it very deeply into my soul that I could understand the importance uh, of the word and that it was um, attested in that way uh, to be something that uh, I should give full respect uh, to because it's the authority of God that it carries. So the Bible itself has all these qualities. Yes, there's the testimony of the church. It has excellence. But there's the witness of the Scripture that's inescapable uh, there as uh, giving full persuasion uh, and assurance of its divine 
authority, of its authority from God. Uh, The next topic, and we're kind of mopping up a few little ancillary implications of inspiration. Uh, The next topic is the perfection of the Bible. That is, that the Bible itself is a text uh, that uh, uh, is without error. God uh, has his Bible contain his whole counsel. Uh, The Bible is not uh, fundamentally flawed, but rather the Bible is true in all that it teaches and asserts. And therefore, the Bible is an adequate rule for every area of our life. Now, we have to parse this very carefully. Try to fix this uh, noise. Something in the wire, I'm afraid. Um, the Bible is a rule. You can think of it like a ruler uh, that uh, maybe you uh, had as a child or in school. A straight edge by which you can measure something, by which you can uh, uh, draw a straight line or determine what is right and what is wrong, what, what is along that straight line. Um, the Bible is adequate as an authority, as a rule in every area, in the, in the area of theology. Obviously, the Bible is uh, authoritative, and it is a rule. That is, if you're going to talk about the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of salvation, you've got to be opening the Scriptures uh, because that is what you judge each and every idea by. Uh, for example, sometimes uh, people will do their doctrine of God by sitting down and abstractly trying to think up what love must be like or what goodness must be like, or what righteousness must be like, or holiness must be like. And these are interesting experiments that people do in their thinking. But at the end of the day, when you have a piece of paper with all your ideas about love on it, or all your ideas about holiness holiness on it, how do you know what ideas on the paper are right or wrong? Well, you've got to go to the Scriptures. You've You've got to check your own thinking, weigh it in the balance, Check it against the rule or the straight edge of the Bible. And uh, the Bible is adequate as a rule. Because it's a rule, it is adequate in the area of ethics and in the area of worship and in the area of government for the church. Uh, It's also adequate for the area of Christian experience. Now, each one of these areas is important. That means that when it comes to the worship of God or to ethics, let's take that first, Uh, to to what is moral and immoral, how we should live at peace with one another, what is right and wrong. It's not just that we will make uh, philosophical arguments. It's not just that we will say what we think or what we feel. At the end of the day, to really know what is right and what is wrong, what true ethics are, we have to listen to God. We have to listen to his book. Yes, he's created the realm of nature, Yes, in the realm of nature, the glory of God is declared. Yes, it is good to listen to that and and to analyze it. But at the end of the day, the final check and the rule by which all these things are governed is the Bible. The Bible is is the rule of faith and practice. Uh, The same thing is true with regard to worship. How do you know what to do in worship? Um, I grew up in uh, in a mixed marriage. Uh, My father was Presbyterian and my mother was Moravian. Now, that's not Mormon. That's, uh, it's uh, an early Protestant group uh, who had followed John Huss and had lived in uh, what is today uh, modern uh, Slovakia and modern uh, Czech Republic, and then they moved over to Germany 
uh, to the little town of Hernhut. They were they were sheltered there by Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, who was a good uh, pietistic Lutheran, and uh, he allowed these people to settle there and to establish their homes and build their trade and business, and they built a community there, and they built a church there, and they began worshiping the Lord. Uh, they be- their greatest claim to fame is that they had a hundred-year continuous, every hour, day and night, a hundred-year prayer, prayer meeting. Everybody in the, in the community would take a different hour, and your hour might be at uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You would, you would go to the church and pray from 4 to 5. Somebody else's might be from uh, 4 a.m. to 5 a.m., and they would get up at 4 a.m., and they would pray from 4 to 5 at the church, kind of tag team. And they particularly were praying that the Lord would bless all the missionaries that they sent out. They were a very strongly and zealous missionary-oriented community, and they, they sent missionaries out to the West Indies. They sent the missionaries out to the Eskimos. They sent missionaries out to... Um, uh, to England, they sent missionaries to America, all around the world. And what was the spiritual powerhouse behind it, or foundation behind it, was this prayer meeting uh, that went on continually uh, in their home church. And uh, but they have a they have some interesting uh, cultural practices that have kind of crept into their uh, to their historic worship. For example, uh, they do the Lord's Supper, but the thing they're really excited about is is not the Lord's Supper so much as it is uh, what they call love feasts. And, uh, you know, I really wasn't all that excited about Love Feast because uh, they would come in not with bread and, 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 and grape juice, which I thought would be very interesting to have as a kid. Uh, they came in with uh, these big kind of funny-tasting yeasty buns with an M kind of impressed in the top of it for Moravian. And then they would pass down the pew a big mug of, of uh, milky coffee. And this was long before Starbucks they did this. And I can remember just thinking passing mugs down the aisle in church because I'd never seen that, and that stuff didn't taste very good, at least not to me at the time. And where did this come from? Well, it was, it was part of a, um, a fellowship celebration and meal that they had in that little village, and it ended up spreading all around the world and, and into all of their churches. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the love feast can be a very uh, emotionally uh, and spiritually, you know, kind of uplifting time, but, but the Bible doesn't tell us to do that anywhere uh, in the Old Testament or the New Testament as a part of worship. That's an extra thing somebody added. Very sentimental, very nice. Wouldn't go out of my way to criticize them in that sense, but at the end of the day, it uh, just isn't a biblical thing to be doing, per se. And uh, so in the area of worship, the rule by which we judge what we should and shouldn't be doing in worship uh, is the Bible itself. And uh, so you have... Uh, by that uh, spiritual or regulative principle, scriptural principle, you have very simple worship with the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the praying of the word, and the seeing of the word in the two sacraments the Lord has appointed. In church government, how in the world do we set up, a, a, how is a church ruled? Well, you have to start with the fact that God is God and he sent his son to be the king and head of the church. The Bible teaches us that. And if you look in the pastoral epistles and in the book of Acts and in the opening and closing sections typically of of Paul's epistles, there you will see that the Lord has established two offices. Uh, You will see in Philippians, for example, a reference to uh, uh, him commending his letter to the deacons and to the elders. So in Philippi, there there were deacons and elders and more than one deacon and more than one elder. They're in plural. And so you have a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons in each place. Back in the book of Acts, you see the origin of the book of deacons, or the office of deacons in Acts chapter 6, where the uh, apostles were busy 
and uh, they were being distracted looking after practical things in the church, and so the office of deacon was established in order to hand those things off to, that godly, spirit-filled men would be able to look after the practical things of the church so the apostles and the elders would continue in the ministry of the word and prayer. And by the time you get to uh, the pastoral epistles of First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, there you see specific qualifications listed for the office of elder and for the office of deacon. And so churches need to have not one elder and one deacon, not uh, uh, no elder and only deacons. They need to have a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons because that's what's taught and reflected in the New Testament. It's all based upon the Old Testament as well. The New Testament church government system is a picked up and carried over Xerox form of the synagogue system that our Lord grew up in. There were elders in the local congregations and uh, there were consultations of groups of elders when there were problems uh, that had to be resolved in the church. So the Bible is an adequate rule in the area of church government. We could go on and on listing these things. For example, in your own Christian life, you have your up and down days spiritually. You have days in which you are very conscious of the fact that the Lord's hand is on you, that he is encouraging you, that he's opening and closing doors providentially, that he is answering your prayers, and you feel as if uh, God is very near. And then there are other times in which you feel as if God is not very near. Uh, he may, it may feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Uh, it may feel as if you're uh, out of sort with yourselves and, as well as the rest of the world. Now, how are we to judge Are you super spiritual in one case and totally pagan and lost in the other? How do we judge your experience and know how to think about that and how to respond and live accordingly? Well, it's going to be in light of the Scriptures. The Bible is is a rule when it comes to your Christian life. The Lord is the manager of your life. He, He created you. He has saved you by His Son. He's applied that work by the Holy Spirit. He watches over you each and every day. Don't you think that you ought to listen to Him more than anybody else when it comes to what's good and bad to do in the Christian life, Uh, what is uh, good for your soul and what's bad for your soul? Christian living, Christian experience is to be judged in light of the Bible as an adequate rule. And it's more than that. It's that the Bible also can bind conscience. Do you remember what Luther said? at the Diet of Arms, when he was faced with uh, all sorts of accusations, he said with regard to the Scriptures, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, He stamped his foot uh, in favor of the authority of God, and he submitted himself to the authority of God by submitting himself to uh, the text of the Scriptures. He was willing to admit that he was wrong if someone could show him from the Bible. And so he emphasized... uh, Solo Scriptura, that the Bible is the only rule. It contains all that we have a right to impose on Christian conscience. For example, what automobile do you drive? What brand of automobile? Do we have anybody with a Ford here? Ford? Uh, Chrysler? Any Chryslers? Uh, Toyotas? (laughs) Hondas? See, we have... We have different flavors and different tastes, okay? Well, would it be right for Fred Greco to stand in the pulpit and to preach that we all ought to buy Ford or Toyota? Fords, anyway. (laughs) To get up and say, no, Mazda, that's the spiritual car to buy. How would we judge if if a man stands in the pulpit and tells us that we all have to go buy a Subaru? How do we... 
How do we judge that? Well, we would judge it by the Word of God. And the Word of God would fairly clearly indicate to us uh, that that's not something that, that we're supposed to directly uh, be making any kind of, of uh, statement concerning. The Bible doesn't uh, command us uh, to eat fish on this day or, or meat on this other day. It doesn't command us with regard to what size house to buy or car to drive. There are biblical principles of ethics and wisdom and justice and righteousness. But at the end of the day, uh, those principles are to be expounded. And then uh, the Holy Spirit is to apply those things to our conscience in different areas. I, I, um, I, have, a, I have a very strong uh, intellectual conviction about the kind of car that I bought. And it has very little to do with a particular verse in the Bible telling me what brand to buy, because there is none. What really convinced me, there is one. Ah, yeah. So the Bible, the Bible does say they were all of one. They were all in one accord. A Honda Accord, you think it was? Okay. Okay. Well. I must say, I've never heard that before, and I don't quite know what to say. (laughs) Um, It's not that you can't make any practical application from the Bible, but this is an area of adiaphor. This is an area where every Christian conscience is left to it. I bought not the cheapest car to buy. As best I could research it, I bought the cheapest car to own. That is, the long-term, five- to ten-year cost of the automobile. I found the cheapest one I could because... That's, I guess I'm just of Scottish background, and that's the way I am. And um, uh, so that would be left to Christian conscience. We wouldn't have a right to bind people's consciences on the, on the kind of automobile they buy or whether they should wa- uh, uh, shop at Walmart or Target or whether, whether they should go on vacation to the coast or to the mountains. These, these are not things that the Bible binds conscience on. Uh, we have a glorious freedom in these things. And uh, uh, so the Bible is a freeing book in that it, uh, it defends us against people putting arbitrary uh, binding on our conscience. But the Bible is a rule, and it is the only rule. It does contain th- statements that we do not only have a right to, a responsibility to bind conscience with. For example, the Bible is very clear that uh, we should not murder and we should not uh, commit adultery and we should not steal, and we should not lie, and we should not covet. The Lord gives us very particular and peculiar commands. And uh, uh, the Holy Spirit and conscience, that that is that we're made in the image of God, are very active in this area and let us know, yes, these things are true. And therefore, we are bound by them because we're bound by God, because we're His, uh, and we owe Him all. Uh, This... Uh, does not uh, push away the need for the Holy Spirit. It does not push away the need for logic and thinking and reasoning. Uh, those things are important too, not as a rival to the Bible, but as a way as, of unfolding the implicit meaning in the Bible. Uh, there are some things in the Bible which are explicit. Um, it is not right. It is not right for us to steal. Uh, another man's cow. That's very clear. And in the new. Uh, but at the same time, uh, while that's explicit with regard to a cow or a sheep, well, what about a puppy dog? Uh, what about stealing someone else's cat? 
I ate Chinese food today for lunch, and as I was getting the chicken, I, I just prayed that it was chicken. <laughs> My father, when I was a child, told me that the only safe thing to get in some restaurants is shrimp, you know, um, because it's harder to disguise. My, my point is simply this. It's that uh, we, we have explicit teachings in the Bible, and then we have implicit. For example, the word Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible, but all over the Scriptures, with even greater intensity in the New Testament, is the teaching about the threeness and the oneness, the triunity of God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're equal in power and glory. These basic teachings are found uh, not just in one place, but in many places. And um, that's an implied doctrine. Expli- that's an, an implicit doctrine, not an explicit doctrine. And uh, it's not that explicit ones are things we're really sure of and implicit ones we can really doubt. Uh, not at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the incarnation and the two natures of Christ, divinity and humanity, is a reasoned doctrine. It's taught by the Scriptures. Uh, it's, there's not one verse that uh, answers every question we might have about that. And that's good because it's a very complicated doctrine with implications for all the different aspects of our life. Uh, that our Savior is not flying above our head, but rather he touches us in the flesh, and he is God incarnate, and he can make a difference in our life that is utterly profound and beyond what we ourselves can make. So the fact that the Bible is a rule, and therefore the the fact that the Bible alone uh, is to be that rule, uh, means uh, that we need to apply thinking... Um, for, ex- for example, infant baptism. I, I've never met anybody who's in favor of infant baptism that says that there's an explicit verse. Uh, but then again, that doesn't uh, mean that it's not, not a doctrine uh, or that it's wrong. Uh, the Bible is clear, uh, but it also requires reason at the same time. Uh, there is in uh, the Confession of Faith a reflection about this perfection of the Bible and the perfection of the Scriptures uh, in section Chapter 1, it says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture, good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added by new traditions of men. You see, that is a call to a very reflective uh, to sharpen our pencil uh, and to draw good and necessary consequences or inferences uh, from what the Bible says. We need to think, think, think when we're handling the Scriptures uh, rather than just go around quoting verses. I recently uh, was with a, uh, a dear Christian sister who uh, had just uh, gone through horrible and heartbreaking experiences uh, in, her early, in her early life. And she was sharing with some uh, some friends uh, what she had gone through. And uh, someone in her past had taken a verse out of the Old Testament and thrust it in her face in a most cruel way uh, and uh, accused her of really being responsible for all the terrible things that had happened to her as a minor child. And uh, uh, this uh, verse that they were thrusting in her face was from the Old Testament uh, civil law. And I sort of smiled, and she said, what? And I said, well, you know, in the Bible, there are three kinds of law. There's moral law, like summarized in the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. And there's civil law, dealing with uh, 
the economy of Israel and crimes and punishments. And uh, um, uh, there's ceremonial law about the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and that sort of thing. And I said, you know, those, those ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ. The moral law continues on for all time because we're made in God's image and the Ten Commandments always applies and the Lord's two great commandments. And, and the, the civil law of Israel was for a peculiar time uh, to prepare Israel to be that unusual culture and nursery into which the Lord was to exist. Uh, the the uh, nation state of Israel died and those laws no longer are dile- directly applicable and uh, they don't bind any of us. In the New Testament, the way it uses Old Testament Mosaic civil law is by uh, applying it spiritually to the church in things like, uh, for example, execution in the Old Testament is applied to, to excommunication in the New Testament. We, we don't uh, in the church. Uh, what we do is speak the truth of the Word of God to them. And uh, she began to cry. She began to cry because the text of text from the Bible in the Old Testament had been used like arrows to break her heart pierce her and, and, and were cruel to her, and to hear f- that those had been misunderstood and the good and necessary inference had not been drawn, confusion and error and mistakes had been drawn, and it was very liberating to do to, uh, for her, and, and uh, a number of us have gotten quite a, quite a handful of emails for her just thanking God for this, it has been so liberating in her life to be set free of a false and uh, many of us have uh, uh, come out of false interpretations at one point or another in our lives, and we know how freeing and joyful that can be uh, to be set free to obey the Scriptures, not a confusion of man. Uh, In this chapter 1, section 6 of the Confession, there are two things that are highlighted. One is is that there are um, certain circumstances concerning uh, worship and the government of the church, uh, which we have to handle very carefully. It says uh, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature, Christian prudence, and according to the general rules of the word always to be observed. The light of nature. Again, that's God speaking through the, the realm of nature. The light of nature shows us the glory of God. The light of nature also shows us some good old-fashioned sanctified common sense. And the general rules of the word are also uh, spiritual common sense. And uh, uh, the light of nature, Christian prudence means to be careful, uh, Christian care. For example, to understand that when we're dealing with someone else, we're dealing with one made in the image of God, and we don't run over them, we don't crush them, we don't lord them. We care souls and work for their good. Uh, these principles are uh, very important when it comes to handling matters of worship and government. And uh, so particularly in Christian worship, we have to take care uh, lest uh, we have bad interpretations. Well, I think uh, slide seven here is a good place to stop. We'll take a break for a few moments and then uh, come back for the second half. Thank you. Excellent. So we're getting, as Dr. Rankin pointed out, we're getting near the end of our of our sort of semester here. And uh, if you look in the, the table of contents of Jeffrey's book, we'll talk about chapters 15 and 16 tonight. Well, that takes us down to the last four chapters. So we'll have another month or so, uh, and then we'll be done with this. And 
uh, we'll look at the next thing. We'll, we'll, we'll have other plans for the future. But in the meantime, I, as you know, I have a, an obligation to begin with review, and so I shall. Last time we were together, we were talking about chapters 13 and 14, and chapter 13 deals with the topic of redemption. Uh, you recall that redemption, uh, in its etymological roots, literally means to buy back. It implies, of course, something needs to be bought, right? The, the implication, it's most often applied in its historical context to slavery. You redeem slaves. And that's sort of, that's a statement sort of our condition. We are slaves to sin until such time as Christ redeems us and pays that payment, that, that ransom, uh, for, for us. Uh, and notice that we, we pointed out last time, this is, this is God's justice. If there's a price, if there's a ransom, if there's a cost to be paid, how do we determine what that is? God determines what that is, right? There's, God's justice must be satisfied. There must be penalty for sin. Uh, but Christ pays it, and that's, that's the beauty of it. Sin can't simply be ignored. And so that goes together nicely with what we discovered in chapter 14, which is the notion of justification, you know, to make one right or to make one just before God. Uh, Jeffrey points out is the opposite of condemnation, right? So to be condemned is to be noted as not right, right? You're being sort of identified. Well, justification is the, the, the exact polar opposite of that uh, in which we are pronounced. And I remember we talked a little bit about this word. We are pronounced acquitted. Acquitted is different than innocent, of course, right? Uh, as we talked about, reflected in our own courts of law. We don't say at the end of a trial that this party is innocent. We say he is not guilty. We don't feel confident to judge the innocence or guilt of a person, but we, we do feel that we, we can at least say that, that this thing, we're not sure that he in fact did it. It doesn't imply innocence. And so acquittal is a great term to think of uh, in this context. We are not innocent. Is anybody here sin-free? Nobody ever volunteers that one. I don't know why. We're not without sin, right? It's not, we, none of us can say we didn't sin. And yet that penalty can be paid on our behalf, and we can be acquitted of the charge, as it were, and so we can be justified before God. So we're going to talk tonight about these next couple of chapters, chapter 15 and 16. The topic of chapter 15 is adoption. It's a common expression uh, in American culture. You hear it sometimes, maybe a little more in the past than you do today. But have you ever heard this expression? Well, you know, we're all God's children. There's an implication there, right? The reason I think, by the way, I think this is, has such a kind of history in American culture is that it implies a strong sense of equality, right? Why do people say we're all God's children? It's a way of saying, well, we're all basically the same. And so, you know, in America, we have all this sort of history of, of you know, uh, racial distinction and, and immigrant groups fitting in or not fitting in. And, and so we, a way we try to kind of paper over those differences is to talk about, well, we're all God's children. If you've read ahead, if you've read chapter 15 in, uh, in Jeffrey here, uh, is that true? That's pretty clear from Scripture, right? Now, Scripture is very clear. We are created in the image of God, and we are created by Him, right? Well, certainly, Adam, I think Scripture is pretty clear, though, that that image might be damaged, but it's not gone. We are not, we don't cease to be made in the image of God. Although maybe Adam has a, a maybe a brighter reflection of that image pre-fall than we do. But we, so the image of God doesn't go away. 
But notice that's not what the phrase says, right? I mean, this is, probably, this is why you bring it up. To be made in God's image is not the same as being a family member, right? To be a son of. That's a different thing, right? I mean, it sounds like, just, just think of the words. It sounds like it would be a different thing. So it is, it is fair to say, yeah, there's a, obviously we are the handiwork of God. But are we all God's children in that literal sense? Jeffrey makes the, he makes the suggestion at least that he says, no, we're not. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of John, if you have your Bibles with you. I'm looking in John chapter 8. This is an extended uh, uh, discussion that Jesus is giving here, and we'll pick up in the middle of it. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 42, John chapter 8, verse 42. He says, Jesus said to them, If, and notice the word, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you, the, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I don't want to belabor the point. And there are other passages we can look at. This is just an example. Jesus does not seem to be saying to folks, hey, we're all God's children. It's all okay. Who does he say our father is? He actually says the devil is our father, right? I mean, that's, that's not comfortable. That doesn't make me feel good when I hear that. Uh, he, in fact, even suggests, no, you're not children of God, right? You are, in fact, children of the devil. Mm-hmm. I'm just reading the Bible so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's that's precisely at least that's Jeffrey's point of view. So if you turn uh, with, uh, understand two books, one Bible, one Jeffrey. I don't know what you're going to do. Uh, if you had four hands, this would go better for you. But turn with me to chapter uh, chapter 15, page 73, uh, Jeffrey's chapter on adoption, and look at the second paragraph. He says he says Jim almost exactly that. The second paragraph, in order to become a child of God, because you notice here, again going back and forth in this chapter in John, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. That doesn't mean that God can't be your father. Just the implication is that that in your natural state, that is simply not true, right? So what does Jeffrey say? In order to become a child of God, a sinner has first of all to be justified. And notice this actually follows the chapter on justification. So this works out well, right? It's not an accident. Has to be justified. Based on justification, Jeffrey writes, the sinner can then be adopted into God's family. And he gives several examples there, which maybe we should go ahead and look at. Um, he gives, you see in the parentheses, Ephesians. Let's take a, just a quick look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to actually uh, take a little sliver of verse 4 and then into verse 5. <coughs> this is what Paul writes. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons 
through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I love that, that phrase, predestined us for adoption. Now, just to be clear, I, I'm not trying, this is not a trick question. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. What does adoption mean? When you hear that word, what comes to mind? What is, what is, what is, what is adoption? It's actually probably an easy question. I'm not trying to trick you. Yeah, there's a, you say, and it's an important word there. It's, it's kind of a legal distinction, right? Uh, if, if you are, uh, and most of us are, right? We're natural born children of someone, right? Uh, it's hard to avoid that, in fact. People have mothers and fathers on some level. Um, I hesitate because when I think of my own family experience, yeah, it can go both ways. But, um, but certainly, we all have a natural origin of some sort, right? But, and increasingly in our culture today, this is, this is half true in my experience, in my own personal life. One of my parents is not the natural, the one I think of, is not, is not the natural, not the biological portion of that relationship. In a sense, not in, not in the way that maybe a good lawyer would appreciate, uh, but, but my father is my, in a sense, adopted father. He's not the person who biologically fathered me, but he's the one who raised me. He's the one who is my, by every, every other important standard, he was the father in my life. And that's how I think of him even to this day. I don't even think of anything else. There's a, there's a relationship there that might not be the natural biological relationship, but it's a critically important relationship, Right? When God says that, or when, when Paul says that God predestines us for adoption as sons, the implication is that there's a, maybe not the natural relationship, maybe we don't start off that way, maybe because of sin we're separated from him, but there's an avenue by which we can be brought into that family. So starting where we, where we started, that notion that we're all God's children might be a, an overstatement, it's an exaggeration maybe to make us feel better about certain things. But it is possible to become a part of the family of God in the same way that, that in a legal sense it's possible for a child to be adopted into a family and then, then all the sort of the, the rights and the, the privileges of that membership devolve to that child. Uh, the same can happen for us with God. Actually, let's, let's explore this a little bit. What, is it, what are the implications of adoption in the biblical sense? What is, what's the effect of being the recipients of this adoption for us. Yeah, that's I mean, it's really that's the key, right? It's an inheritance. What do we inherit? A boat, piece of property by the lake. Not in my case, I assure you. What's the inheritance that comes with being an adopted child of God? It's yeah, it's everything in a sense, right? Eternity, the world. Everything. What God has to think, what, what does God possess? Actually, what does he not possess? I mean, right? It's all, and if we are his heirs, what does the Bible say? We are co-heirs, in fact, with Christ, right? So we're adopted in. We become sons and daughters of God. We become heirs to everything there is. That's, I'm just suggesting, that's, it's a pretty sweet deal if you can get it, right? I mean, that's, it's a remarkable relationship that, and, as Paul puts it here, it's predestined. God planned this as though from the beginning. This was his plan to adopt us and to uh, put us in a relationship, restore us to a relationship with himself. Flip over to page 75 in Jeffrey. He kind of tries to highlight this a little bit. 
he emphasizes, of course, that it is, it is God's will to do so. It's our privilege to be a part of. And notice what he says here, the first full paragraph on page 75. The world has nothing to compare with this. There is no more privileged person than a Christian. What do you think Jeffrey means by that? There is no more, it's a curious phrase. There is no more privileged person than a Christian. Does that mean we get like premium parking at events? It's, I can think of a, exactly right. I can think of a lot of things that, that I might enjoy in my life. If somebody gave me, you know, season tickets to the Houston Texans, I would enjoy that. That would be nice. Um, no, I'd give those back. I'd sell them, but nobody will buy. I can think of a lot of, you know, I, I, I enjoy the house that, that, that my, my wife and my family and I enjoy, but I'm sure that I could find ways to, you know, maybe augment that or maybe trade it in. I, there are all sorts, of, all sorts of comforts that I could identify as things I might enjoy. But the privilege of being a son of God is immeasurable, isn't it? I mean, isn't that really the bottom line here? Jeffrey's not exaggerating. He says there is no more privileged person than a Christian. Now, how does that, how does that sound, do you think? Jeffrey does not deal with this question. How does that sound in the ears of a non-believer? You're saying that to me, or? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Right, sure, right. And you're right, there's, a, there's kind of, there's kind of a, a spectrum of, of, you know, non-belief takes many forms, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're just, yeah, hateful, right. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. What does the world think of when it hears the term privilege? What do you think of when you hear the term privilege? See, I'm okay with elitism, but yeah, I understand what you mean, sure. Say that again. Yeah, it's, it's material for the most part, right? So when you hear a phrase like, there is no more privileged person than a Christian. You, don't you have a lot of friends who would start to sort of catalog, you know, what, what do I get out of this, right? You know, what, does this affect my annual income in some way? Is there a bonus attached? Um, does this, can I, can I upgrade the lease on my car? I'd like a better one, right? Uh, when we think of privilege, that's usually where our minds wander. Now, I think that's just... I think it's a consequence of the fall. I think it's just sin. That's just how we see privilege. Yeah, and probably with a great deal of envy, right? Yeah, the, envy because, well, I should have that, not because there's something wrong with having it, but it should be me, not not you or not you or whatever, right? Okay, well, you're a generous man, I suppose, yeah. It's not so much everybody else I'm worried about, it's me. Am I getting the, the proper, you know, adulation I, I deserve? 
It's a zero-sum game. I'm taking yours. That's that's how I say. But I don't know. That's again, that's my sin speaking. Uh, but that, that notion of privilege really does, right? It kind of gets that sort of. I, I I know it because I see it out there, right? So and I and I want that. But the notion here that, of course, that Jeffrey's talking about that that I think is suggested in Scripture is not is a completely different kind, but of infinite worth in comparison. I love this little. Um, this little sort of uh, bit of poetry that Jeffrey includes here at the end of that section. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father cries. You've probably even sung that before. It's a, it's a beautiful um, sort of um, expression there. Think of all the, yeah, I guess, you know, all the material goods I could or could not possess but imagine a life in which fear no longer plays an important part, where where sin no longer becomes a, sort of this distraction from all that could be. Those are privileges that are beyond price. I mean, you couldn't put a price tag on such a thing. Let me ask you... Um, Again, as I said before, it's not really an accident that the previous chapter is on justification. This chapter is on adoption. Uh, why do they follow so closely together? Even Jeffrey himself said earlier that you know, justification makes adoption possible. But what's the relationship there? Like, how does help me understand? How does it work? Like, what does justification do that makes adoption possible? Yeah. When um, going back to John here, when 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 Christ says, "Look, you're of your father, the devil," I, I assume he's talking about sort of the unjustified person, right? Why can't I be a child of God without justification? What? Why would that be a problem? Isn't God? He's he's all-powerful. He could do that, right? I, do I have to be justified? This is, this is the problem. I was say, this is the problem. I'm the problem, right? It's I'm an affront to God. In, in my sinful state, I, that's, that is, he's perfectly righteous, and I am, let's just say not, and leave it at that. It is not really conceivable that God can sort of... It's actually kind of, it's my segue into the next chapter, which is why I'm saying this the way I am. Uh, if I'm going to have a relationship with God, I have to be of the, of the kind of person that he can have a relationship with. Without that justification, without being made right with him, I can't be adopted into the, let's say, the holy family in that sense, right? Well, actually, there's a whole... we. We aren't going to do it tonight, but by the time we're done with this book, we do have to look at... There's a reason why all of these chapters flow in the sequence they flow. You're right. We're taking like a little sort of snapshot here. Justification leads to adoption, but something leads to justification, and and adoption probably leads to something else. Actually, adoption, I think I can say with confidence, leads to chapter 16. It's a beautiful thing, which is entitled Union with Christ. 
we've talked about this before, I know, but what's our relationship with God like prior to salvation? It's actually, exactly, it's actually hostile. It's not neutral. This, is, this I think, is a mistake that, Steve, you're right. In some cases, that hostility is like right out front, right? They just hate God, and they're going to tell everybody who will listen, and even if you won't listen, they'll tell you. There's another kind of person that seems to just kind of turn a blind eye. Yeah, that's what happens over there. But I think if we study our scripture carefully, even the apparently neutral person is actually hostile towards God. And how do we know this? God established criteria for us. He gave us, he built into us, he built into creation a kind of order. And we are to live by it, and yet because of sin, we don't do that, right? We make a law for ourselves. Isn't that, in its essence, isn't that what sin is? God says yes, I say no. That's not neutrality towards God, that's hostility towards God. I reject him and put myself in his place. Now maybe I don't say the words, I hate God, you know, like every good atheist does. But by choosing my will over his will, I am rejecting that, I'm choosing my... That's not neutrality, that's not tolerance, that's not sort of live and let live, that's me hating God. That's what sin is. If you take the love the parents part out, yeah, it probably is. Because I don't think we really love God in that state. I, if you loved God, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Well, I'm, you I'm saying, as, as a teenager, there were times that I got really angry with my parents because of what they said or did or whatever. And, and yet, ninety percent of the time, I, I really and truly loved them. Right? But I was also a teenager. Yeah. So I, I acted that. Way. That I I I, I can I'm probably the same. I was the same way. I'm sure. But that's a, it sounds to me like a much more benign relationship than the one that we have as an unbeliever with God. We don't sometimes agree and sometimes disagree. We don't, yeah, I kind of like him, but not at this moment. We hate him all the time. Exactly. That's not neutral, right? That's, that is harsh. Hatred. Exactly. It's, and if it's the same root from where we get the word enemy. Yeah, there's no sort of middle ground there, right? So, again, maybe, maybe it gets expressed differently by different kinds of, of people. We, we may think that we are, you know, just fine and dandy and we're okay with God, but it's typically not the God of the Scripture. Right. It's not with a, you know, it's not with a spirit and obedience that's speaking with God as you You're exactly right. I have a family member with whom I have this conversation frequently. And I will say, you know, you, you really need to, you need to really look at your sin. You need to look to God, and you need to confess that sin and, and seek His salvation. This family will always say, "Oh, I'm, I'm good with God. Me and the man upstairs, we're okay." Any, first of all, when you hear that phrase, "man upstairs," that's that's not the God of the Bible. That's that's never the phrase that anybody really uses to describe the Father. It's, it's, you're right, it's accommodating a different God, right? And that's, that's the way we fool ourselves, but not even fool ourselves. It's a way we assert our will over the will of the living God. That's hostility. That's, and you can't have, you can't really enter into a relationship. Maybe that's, maybe that's why it's different from sort of the, you know, sort of the parent-teenager relationship. 
at the end of the day, you probably had a relationship with your parents. I know I did, even on, even on the bad days, I still had a relationship. We don't really have a relationship with God when we're outside of salvation. Or if we have a relationship, it's one of enmity. We hate him, we put ourselves in his place, which is ridiculous when you think of who we are and who he is, but it's what we do. You can't be united with him, you can't have adoption, you can't have union with Christ as long as you're in that condition. So justification must precede uh, union with Christ. Look with me on page 77. I, when I saw this, uh, this, ch- this chapter for the first time, I hadn't really thought of this before, but look about halfway down that first paragraph, he says, Jeffrey says, there is a living, vital, dynamic union with Christ that is not theoretical but real. And this is it. This is why over 160 times in the New Testament, which is not a huge book, 160 times, Paul uses the words in him or in Christ or in Christ Jesus. So I guess the first question I have for what does it mean to be in Christ? It seems like it's important if Paul's going to say it 160 times. Nick, this is not an easy one. I, I understand. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly right. And it's, it's a relationship that's really hard to compare to anything else. I was trying to think of this uh, when I was sort of preparing uh, tonight's material. And we'll get to actually that bullet point at least is important because that actually helps, I think, helps us understand what that really means to be in Christ. But I have all sorts of relationships, right? I have parents. I have a relationship with them. I have, uh, I have a brother. We have a relationship. I have a wife. I have children. I have friends, at least two or three of them. I have colleagues that I work with. I have a relation. But I never, in any of those relationships, I never say that I am in that person. Do you understand what I'm getting at there? I have a relationship, but it's not a complete, total, all-consuming relationship. The most intimate, the most the most serious relationship I have is with my wife. And this, by the way, I think, just in terms of our language, it's where we get the closest, maybe, to this kind of language. Because we will say we are, if, and, and if you're married, I hope that you feel this way, or you're contemplating marriage, I hope you soon feel this way. We will talk about being in love, as though it's like a, like a location that you can sort of reside within, right? Uh, I don't say that I'm in love with my coworkers. Actually, I can't stand some of those people sometimes, but... But with that, that one relationship, okay, that's, but even that, I would not go around saying, oh, I'm in Sherry today. I mean, just, that would be bizarre, right? And I'm never exhorted, even in scripture, to make sure you're, you're in your spouse. No, but we are to be in Christ Jesus. There's a relationship there that is a completely consuming relationship. Hence, Jeffrey uses the word union. That's a strong word. United, become one with. And notice it's not on equal terms. Christ doesn't meet us sort of halfway, and, and we're sort of half Jesus, half something else. No, no, you are in him. It's completely inclusive, and it's completely him. 
It's union with Christ, as he calls it here. And Nick pointed out here, still on this page 77, and trying to kind of give us some sort of something to hold on to. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, he's got this list here from drawn from different parts of Scripture. He says, for example, in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. I don't know what all that includes, but every spiritual blessing seems like a lot. We are chosen in Christ, right? We are brought near to God in Christ. So again, how, how do we even have a relationship with the Father at all? But it's, it's, it's in and through Christ. We're created anew. We are loved by God. We, we are all one. This is an interesting thought, right? We hear who we worship together. We study together. We pray together. We become one as a church in Christ, right? So that's, I don't know, those strike me as, as, um, in a way, intriguing, but also beautiful thoughts that, that begin, and that's, I don't think that completely covers it, but begin to show us what it means to have this very unusual, unique relationship, this union with Christ. Let's flip over another page while we're on the topic here. Turn over to page 78. He wants us to think here about Union with Christ, what's the alternative, right? So if we're not in Christ, what would we be in? Uh, you know, maybe out is a better way to describe it, right? There's, there's nothing, nothing good to be in. You can be in a club, you can be in all sorts of things, but it's not the same as being in Christ. Notice what Jeffrey compares it to here on, on page 78. He compares it to sort of that other, so we can have Christ as our head, or we could have that other head that sort of figure, that father who sort of got us started in the first place, Adam, right? And look what he says here uh, about, uh, oh, a little more than halfway down the page on page 70. He says, God regarded Adam as our representative or head, and what therefore happened to him affects us all. This is something, by the way, I've, I've found that, that even, even otherwise sound Christians sometimes have a hard time with. Let's, what, he, what Jeffrey would have us do is take a close look here at Romans 5. So let's do that together if you don't mind. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll pick up. He says verse 15. I want to back up to verse um, verse 12 to get us started. And we'll read down to verse 19. He says, this is Paul, of course, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, I should keep going, but I'm going to stop here. Who is the, just to be clear, says, for if many died through one man's trespass. Who's he talking about? That is, that is Adam. Do you understand what he's saying? Why do we die? Why do we face judgment for our sin? Yeah, we inherited it. I want you to understand this. When we talk about original sin, we talk about being under the curse. We are cursed because of what Adam did. Don't tell this to my Baptist friends because they get very upset about this. It's not the sin that you commit every day in your life, although that's bad and that would be enough to condemn you right there. It is because you are a son or daughter of Adam that you are under the curse. 
Well, some do. But I have, let me assure you, I have, I have friends that I spend a lot of time with, and it's just the way it goes, I guess, uh, who don't see it that way. It's the sin you commit. This is why they have sort of that notion of an age of accountability, right? At, so if, if, if you have the good fortune to die when you're very young, then straight to heaven for you because you haven't had a chance to sin yet. It is found in no chapter whatsoever. It actually, I think, contradicts what we see right here in the book of Romans. I don't think they read the book of Romans from what I can tell. There are whole sections of the Bible my friends don't read. But <clears throat> but you see what Paul is saying here very distinctly. It is in Adam, it is because of his sin, we inherit this, yes, but we inherit the sin. He is, as Jeffrey says, Adam is our head. We, we, because we all come from him, we are under the same curse he is under. So let me keep on going here. I, I stopped in the middle. I should keep on going. Uh, so uh, one, through one man... One man's trespass, many died. Um, it says, picking up in the middle of verse 15, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So you have Adam, you have Christ. Let's keep on going in verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass bought, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We, we sometimes, I don't say we maybe, uh, Christians sometimes want it both ways. They, they want to they wanna have this notion that I own my sin. Either I sin or I don't. And so they you know, invent this notion of an age of accountability or, or at some point you become sort of you're on the hook for the sin, right? Because you're now mature enough. And it's, it's my sin that I'm being judged for. And it's sort of, it's, it's, it's a choice I make. Either I make or I don't make. Just so happens I, we all happen to make the choice for sin for whatever reason. They don't want to say that Adam is the source of the curse and that we are cursed through his sin. Nobody, they don't like to think about that. They are perfectly happy with one person dying and atoning for the sin of the human race. That's fine. But nobody wants to think that I'm under a curse because of one man. But notice, that's exactly what Paul is saying. And so it's not unreasonable to think of it in the terms that Jeffrey presents it. In a sense, we are either in Christ or we are in Adam. We are literally in Adam because we are born from him. You can, you can trace your genealogy. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you look like. I don't care who your parents are. We can all trace our lineage to Adam. There's nobody here who doesn't come from him. And because of that relationship, because we are, in a sense, he is our head. He is our representative. He stood for the human race that day when he consumed that fruit against God's law. And because of that, he and all of his offspring are cursed. That includes us. That's one man. But there's another man, right? There is this Christ. And because of his actions and because of his atonement for us, we can have that sin forgiven. It's a remarkable relationship. Uh, I don't know about you, but just uh, Paul gets me excited. I guess the Bible gets me excited. Uh, he makes it clear in the next couple of verses. Let's just finish this thought and then we'll, we'll move on. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. I love the juxtaposition there. And finishing in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I don't know if that could be any more clear than it, than it is right there. But so be it.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is pretty casual. Yeah. Yeah, no, this. It's union with Christ, right? This is not, it's not something, it's not, we don't visit, right? We don't occasionally drop in and see our friend Christ. This is union. We, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We are adopted heirs with him. And as we said, heirs to all things. That's, that's a remarkable, a remarkable relationship that you have with, uh, with your Savior that way. That is incredible. And it's not anything that we do or earn or, or make happen. Just, as I said, it makes me excited. Um, just for kicks, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith actually deals with the same subject. And I, I love the statement here. This is in chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession. Uh, chapters 1, 2, or, or, or sorry, paragraphs 1, 2, and 3. Uh, so see if this helps you or makes you feel any better or worse. It says, uh, starting in chapter 6, uh, paragraph 1, Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. That's paragraph 1. Paragraph 2 says, By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. It's a pretty complete statement. It sounds... I don't know, kind of bad to be Adam and Eve under those circumstances, completely defiled, in all, wholly defiled in all parts and faculties of soul and body. But then look at paragraph three. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. What does it mean to be imputed? It's exactly, it's, it's, like, it's like pressed into us. It's, it's, we are part of that. That's, it's imputed to us. We're, we're the recipients, and it's not necessarily a great gift to be receiving. So that guilt of sin is imputed, and the same death in sin, that's the same death in sin that Adam and Eve experienced, and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. So all of their offspring, you know, it says by ordinary generation, so that's, I think, uh, not Jesus would be the key there, right? Uh, that same sinful state, that same original sin is the phrase we often use to describe that, is passed to us. <coughs> that separates us from God and his son in such a way that until we re- experience that justification, we can't enter into that relationship. But this is the beauty, this is the beauty of salvation, because that is possible. We can experience this union with Christ uh, that Jeffrey talks about here in this final chapter, or in this chapter. Let me just, one last thing, then we'll quit for tonight. Uh, on page 80, which is the last page of, of chapter 16, you notice he has here again the sort of the usual couple of questions at the end. Look, it causes us to think. It says right there. Think about it. And then he says here, uh, I'm looking at question number uh, number one. Can a person be in Christ and it make no difference to his lifestyle? Thinking about what we mean by in Christ. Can we do that and not be different? It's, yeah, actually, last night when I was writing that down, it sounded fine. Now it just sounds absurd. Of course not, right? I mean, it's, it's not even, um, it doesn't really warrant a lot of contemplation. But it does, I think, sort of nicely kind of sum up his, his larger point. Without Christ, there is, there is no salvation, obviously. Uh, 
But salvation isn't just sort of a mental state. I think this is something that Jeffrey kind of references several times throughout this book. Just believing the right thing, sort of having in your mind a checklist, I believe A, B, C, and D, so therefore I'm saved. Just having sort of an intellectual kind of assent to a series of, of you know, theological propositions is not adequate. Now, by the way, you should assent to the proper theological propositions. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're doing here? This is the school of theology, right? We're, we're, we're trying to understand what are the, what does it mean to know God, to love Him, to, just, we're trying to sort of build up that, that base of, of good, solid doctrine. But Jeffrey's larger point is that doctrine alone is not sufficient. You should have correct doctrine. You should be orthodox in that sense. But more, just, just as important, maybe more so even, is the fact that you must be in relationship with Christ. There is a, it's not theoretical, it's not intellectual, it is an actual condition. You must be in Christ. And that means that that affects everything else. You can't be, as he suggests here, you can't be in Christ and all those other things that are indicative of, of the, the life of the sinner or the non-believer. We should probably stop here because we're already eight minutes past our quitting time and I apologize for that. Any last questions or comments or anybody here um, want to get out from under the tyranny of Adam? You can probably do that at some point. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads just have a word of prayer before we, we leave. Gracious Lord, indeed gracious, as we're reminded tonight, oh, what a, that free gift of grace, that, that opportunity under Christ to be relieved of the burden of our sin, to, uh, to be not just in Adam, not just to be uh, sufferers of original sin, but to be people who can enter into union with Christ, to become adopted heirs of the, the kingdom of the God the Father. We are grateful, Lord, that, that you call us to just that sort of purpose. Father, help us to, as we prepare to part company here tonight, help us to be mindful of that condition. And as, as our friend Jeffrey reminds us here tonight, help us to be thinking, how might we serve the Lord we love better and better each day? We ask, Lord, that you send us out with your blessing. And we pray in the name of that Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.